This is the MG Car Club podcast. On this episode, we speak to Bill Munro about his book on car bodies, the company that is, and how they built MGs before the war. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello, welcome to the MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you for another episode. And if you're into your pre-war MGs, this is the episode for you. A really interesting insight from Bill Munro into Car Bodies, the company. And he's written the book called The Complete Story of Car Bodies. It's out as a reissue now with a brand new chapter in the book. And that chapter details in far more detail than has ever been released before the relationship that Car Bodies had with Cecil Kimber and, of course, with MG building the vehicles for them pre-war. So a really interesting interview and an interesting piece of history from Bill Munro on this episode. But first, lots of amazing stuff happening in the MG Car Club this year. In particular, lots of events as 2022 gets underway. Of course, looking a bit further into the future, we've got the MGB at 60 celebrations at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon to look forward to on the 25th of September. Still plenty of tickets left if you want to get involved with that. A very advanced to book in advance for that one because it's filling up fast it's a really really busy event this one plus of course it's not just the mgb celebrating this year it's also the anniversary of 40 years of the post abingdon mgs and there's a big event to celebrate that fact on july the 16th it's the mg40 celebration incorporating mg saloon day and it's taking place at the gloucestershire and warwickshire railway station at toddington and all the details on these events and much, much more can be found on the website at mgcc.co.uk. Just go to the events tab there. There's the whole year ahead of you. Do follow the links, though, and get booking your tickets, though, because it's important to book in advance for things at the moment. And talking of booking in advance, that is absolutely what you must do if you want to be a part of the biggest MG show on the planet. It returns at last, MG Live, of course, on the 11th and 12th of June at Silverstone Circuit. It's been a long-awaited return of this fantastic event, and there is so much to do. It's a packed calendar. There's parade laps celebrating 60 years of the MGB, of course. We've got the latest cars from MG Motor UK joining us. Wall-to-wall racing action all day as well both days throughout the weekend using the full circuit at silverstone it really is an amazing spectacle to see mgs flat out and doing what they do best and a whole selection of different eras of mgs will be racing alongside some other marks as guests as well we have, of course, the Lifestyle Marquee with crafts, fashion and more for when all of the petrol-heady stuff just gets a little bit too much. Auto Jumbles, a trade exhibition. All of the MG specialists are joining us, of course. There's going to be cars for sale there. Club displays, you'll see the registers, you'll get to meet the various centres from around the country. And I'll be hosting the live stage, bringing you interviews from the paddock and the pit lane and we'll be going around the show with our roving cameras projecting back to our big screen in the village green next to our live stage all of the highlights of the show so if you've got a very special car feel free to tip me off about it i'll come and bring the crew and we'll talk to you about it do get in touch mgpodcast.uk if you're attending mg live and want us to feature you on the live stage or any of the coverage throughout the weekend 
There's a load of food and drink available as well, circuit parade laps, and of course, MGs as far as the eye can see. Saturday night's going to be fun, actually, because we've got the glow car competition. This is really, really good stuff, and it's run by the MGF register. You can have some fun in your MG uh, Saturday night. Illuminate it best you can, and the judges will be picking the winner. Uh, for the rest of it, it's just a great thing to watch. It looks really amazing, especially on a balmy summer's evening, because, of course, the sun is booked as is the heat for MG Live 2022. And we've got some amazing live music as well. The Candy Girls will be joining me on the live stage throughout the day and into the evening, guitar legends. Those that can play Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, B.B. King and more, they'll be taking us through Saturday evening at MG Live. But one of the big attractions, of course, is motorsport. And I've already mentioned the motorsport that's taking place out on the circuit but within the show itself, there's also some extremely exciting, nail-biting driving going on as part of the historic and exciting California Cup on Saturday. That's our auto test and our auto solo for beginners and guest clubs and all comers, really, taking place on Sunday. All the details about this can be found at mglive.co.uk. But here to tell us more is... Clark of the course, the boss man of the auto test and auto solo, Noel Linford. Hiya, Noel. Wayne, how are you doing? Great to have you on. Very well, thanks. I'm very excited about MG Live, and I know you've mm -hmm. got your work cut out because uh, you are running the auto test and auto solos, aren't you? Yeah, yes. They're starting with the California Cup on Saturday. Give us a bit of background about how this all started, because it goes back many years, doesn't it? Well, the California Cup actually goes back to 1959, and uh, the, the Cup itself was presented to the MG Car Club by the Long Beach MG Club in Cal Long Beach, California as an inter-centre challenge for teams of three cars in MGs, although it was not, were not restricted to MGs back then, I think, uh, to compete across each other for this trophy. And it is quite a magnificent trophy. <clears throat> um, as I say, it started in 1959, the first event being run in front of the Austin factory headquarters, the, the famous round building, which everybody knows from Austin, in their car park. And uh, as it happens, one of the quickest people taking part quickest lady driver on that day was a lady who had bought a Mini bearing in mind this is 1959 it was about three weeks out of production and uh, just bought brand new out of the work, the uh, showroom and she got fastest lady driver award in the Mini they'd never seen a Mini handle like that before anybody Brilliant. and that was that, that first California Cup order test and of course the ladies cup is something that still runs strong today isn't it oh yeah there's fierce competition for that yes and we have some really quick ladies taking part so if I was to enter the California Cup, as I'm hoping lots of our listeners will do, what do people hope to expect? Um, what do they have to do to enter, first of all? And then when they get there, what's it going to be like? Well, to take part and enter, you need to look at the regulations to find out what the rules of the competition are. And you'll find those from the MG Live Motorsport page, which has got all the details about both the auto California Cup auto test and the auto solo. So the supplementary regulations basically uh, enhance the, the standing regulation from Motorsport UK on auto tests as to what's unique about ours. The classes of cars, uh, what the regulations are unique to our event and how the event is actually run. So you need to read those regulations and it's quite straightforward stuff. And you, you know which class your car needs to be in because there's more, not just one trophy that's up for grabs, there are actually four. 
So the California Cup itself is an inter-centre team challenge for a team of any three MGs from each of the centres in the car club. And that's how you win that one. But also there are the register trophy, which is for the earlier cars, the triple M, triple M cars, the 1880s, the T-types, the Y-types even, uh, cars up to basically up to 1955. They compete for the register trophy, and that's an inter-register challenge. Then we've got the BMC trophy for the later cars again, MGAs, MGBs, midgets, uh, anything up to 1980 that was built at um, Tabingdon is in the uh, BMC trophy. And the last one is the Longbridge trophy for the newer cars, of which, of course, were made in Longbridge. Anything from the metros of 1982 right through to the current models. So three cars of any particular model range in the MG range can take part. And an opportunity to enter as an individual and as a team as well, I understand. Yes, you can enter as an individual, but it's very much what we want is teams as much as possible. Teams of three. So, you know, if you find somebody else who's entered in the same class of car as you, get together with them and make a team of three. And it is an amazing spectacle, even if you're not going to take part this year, if you're just coming along to Silverstone to watch, it is an amazing thing to see. You will have never seen an MG Midget dance like you will in the California Cup <laughs> at MG Live. They are phenomenal. Yeah. and They're quite serious at times, aren't they, Noel? They take it very, oh, it, very seriously. They certainly do. It's, it's a, a competition can get quite intense, but don't, don't let that put off anybody who's never done it before, because we all have to learn somewhere. And uh, you'd be surprised with finesse, and a reasonably quick car, you'll do very well in this competition, you know. And uh, it's 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 an experience to uh, to see these cars, what they actually can do in terms of quick handbrake turns and that kind of stuff. And the way I, I set the course out, um, it's it's not too much of a memory test, which auto tests can be. You can present you with a sea of cones and think, where do we go? It's not quite like that. We've got the expansive space of the main arena that we've got in the middle of Silverstone, where right in the heart of it, opposite Cops Runway, and it, it, it gives us space to put a really nice flowing t- set of tests together that will work for any MG, because the turning circle of an MG 1880 is way different from something like a midget, mm. and so the course has to be set up so that anybody in a bigger car doesn't have to do a three-point turn to get round it. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's all about making the cars um, move gracefully, quickly, but non-damaging. You know, we're not, we're not going to have people damaging gearboxes and that kind of thing with the yeah. tests that I run. They're, they are a challenge and they are quick, and but you, anybody can do very well in this. That's the thing, isn't it? We've seen all sorts of cars out there from MG Magnets to, as you say, the early pre-war saloons and, and amazing cars that have taken part in the past. So looking forward to oh, seeing yeah. what we're going to have this year. But also the main point is you can take your daily driver if you're still using an MGTF or even some of the more modern ones, the MG3s and 6s, uh, bring the yeah. daily car down. As you say, it's not going to damage it. Just no, come no, and no, have some right. fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a TF 85th anniversary, and I'll be using that this year to to try out the course, make sure I'm happy with it. Well, you can get all the entry forms, as Noel says, via MG Live, the website. It is mglive.show forward slash motorsport, or you can go to mglive.co.uk and click the motorsport button from there. Either way, it will get you there, and you can find all the forms. And if uh, it all sounds a little bit too competitive for you, or if you've never done auto testing before and you want to have a slightly gentler route in, we have got another competition for people, Noel, haven't we, that people can have a go at for the first time, a kind of taster session, if you like. That's right. It is a taster auto solo. An auto solo is different. 
in a number of respects. One is it's, it's an all-forward auto solo. Uh, there's no reversing. You can have a passenger in the car to be a, as a navigator. And um, rather than trying to work your way around an unknown set of courses, uh, cones, you know, they all look the same, but coloured cones, uh, on an auto solo, the cones are numbers. It's a series of numbered gates that you've got to go through. So there's a logical pattern to, to if you can count from one to thirty-one, you can do it basically. So, <laughs> and that's how that, that's how that works. And it, it's, it's all forward, and it, it's even more of a flowing test because you you know there's no stop or strides. It's, it's continuous forward motion. Brilliant! It sounds great fun. Um, it's a way also for some of the guest car clubs to join us as well, and we've got some triumphs expected and some other motor clubs that are coming along to Silverstone for MG Live. And the great thing about this is it's going to be a bit of an inter-club challenge as well as anything else, isn't it? That's right. We've got the Triumph TR Register, the Triumph Sports Six Club have been invited, the Naylor Car Club, who had the modern version of the the TF um, early TFs. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going, hopefully going to take part. And uh, our friends from Oxford Motor Club, who were very instrumental in running this event for us in re- re- previous years. And they've got some quick um, minis and Austin Ely sprites and whatever. And there are classes of cars to cover that. So it's not purely an MG event. Well, we look forward to seeing it. But even more, we look forward to seeing all of you guys listening, taking part. You can do that very simply. Go to the MG Live website, mglive.show forward slash motorsport or mglive.co.uk. As I say, click the motorsport button there. Uh, Follow the directions. uh, Read the instructions there, the regulations, everything you need. You can book your tickets as well and just add that on at the point of booking. So it's really easy to get involved with this at Silverstone. And I know, Noel, you've got lots of cones to go and lay out so we'll let you get on with it and we'll look forward to seeing you on the 11th and 12th of june at silverstone absolutely look forward to it cheers well our main interview for this episode comes next we'll be talking to bill monroe on the story of car bodies the mg car club podcast the mg car club the mark of friendship to take advantage of our many membership benefits access to our centers and registers and to receive your copy of safety fast magazine join us now at mgcc.go.uk sharing your passion for mg on the mg car club podcast Well, on this episode of the MG Car Club podcast, we're speaking to an author, an author of a book entitled Car Bodies, The Complete Story. Now, car bodies, very important to the MG story because they built uh, so many of the iconic cars from MG's history. We'll find out all about what their contribution to MG history was. Uh, But let's meet the author. He's joining us now. Hello to Bill Munro. Hello, Wayne. Good to talk to you. It's great to have you on, Bill. And I guess we should start at the very beginning as to how someone comes about to write a book about car bodies, who car bodies were, and how they had such a massive impact on the motor industry, in particular MG. But let's start with you, first of all. Give us your background. How did you come to know so much about car bodies, the company? Well, I I spent most of my working life stuck in the front seat of a London taxi, but I I always had a hankering to be a writer. I I, I did write a couple of articles for um, magazines when I was in my teens, notably um, Drag Racing and Hot Rod magazine. And when the photographer of one of our trade magazines left, 
I thought I'd step in and have a go. I, I tried, but I was a lousy photographer, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I was a better writer, and that kind of went on from there. And I've always been mad about cars. And I thought, well, how can I combine what I know about taxis? Because I've been watching them. I've been looking at them, studying them a little bit, and cars and writing and whatever. And the obvious thing was to write about the people that make taxis, which was, at that time, only one company, Car Bodies. And the more I looked, the more I found, well, it wasn't just a magazine article. It was a complete book. Uh, and so I approached the company and they said, okay, we're interested. By the way, we've got a whole load of photographs you might be able to use. I thought, right, we're in. It took a while to get a publisher, but we got one. I got one. And I got cracking on it. And cut a long story short, I found a publisher. Um, it was published in 1998. And um, it kind of set my reputation as a writer. And became a definitive book, really, on the subject of car bodies, the story of the company. And if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard about them, they are best known nowadays for creating taxis, but actually built bodies for the likes of Daimler, Austin, Ford and Triumph and, of course, MG. So where does the car body story begin? Well, it, it starts with a man called Bobby Jones, who... He was born in Bury in Lancashire, about 1875, and studied engineering. He studied coach building. He, he was a woodman. He, he could build um, timber uh, carriage bodies, as they were then. And he, he got into the, the new uh, motor industry by working for Humber and then for Charlesworth in Coventry. What is his building bodies? And got got. To, got to know um, a man by the name of William Watson, who was a Morris dealer. And he, he then moved on from, from William Watson to Hollick and Pratt, who were Morris's earliest suppliers of coach builders. So there was a connection there built way back before the First World War between Bobby Jones and William Morris. Well, after the end of the, the First World War, there was a boom in the British motor industry. And of course, cars at that time were separate chassis, with wood frame bodies and Bobby Jones said okay I'm going to start my own business he went he started off with a, a company called Goodrums a timber merchants in Coventry uh, they decided they didn't want to be coach builders and so Bobby Jones said okay I'll buy the company of you and that's what he did and he started to build his own bodies and he he got he how he messed up with Cecil Kimber or William Morris we really don't know but he's uh, Cecil Kim the story of Cecil Kimber and Morris Garages is well known because he, there he was, um, the general manager of Morris's own um, personal company, Morris's, Morris Garages and Diggler's in Oxford. And Cecil Kimber started commissioning bodies for him. And, of course, we, we, we know the story of, of, um, of how Cecil Kimber decided he could uh, build a sporting Morris, starting with the Chummy. Um, it didn't do too well. Uh, but then one, one of his employees, uh, Jack, Jack Gardner, decided he was, he was going to uh, uh, commission a special body um, from Hughes and Sidecar Makers. He said, let's have a word with Bobby Jones. And that's basically how it started. 
Kim would like what he saw. And the rest, as, as the old cliche goes, is history. Where were they based then? And uh, what sort of volumes did they have in those early days for these rather bespoke-sounding clients? He was always interested in in contract work. Com- uh, companies like Crouch and Cluley, um, names that have been lost into history. Uh, so he, he, he developed some basic body styles, and that's kind of what appealed to, to Kimber, that you could get the consistent... Um, body style um, at, at a reasonable price because price was an important thing to Kimber. Um, the, the fact that the, um, the, the cars that Kimber was selling, Morris, Morris Cowleys and Morris Oxfords, were very cheap, well-built cars, but they were manufactured with price in mind. And, of course, Morris had brought his prices down to be to produce the, the cheapest car of its, its size in, in Britain. And you've got the combination of that cheap-to-produce chassis plus car bodies, cheap-to-produce bodies, to make a, a, a vehicle, a, a sporting vehicle that was really of great value. I mean, an MG at the time, MG 1428 Tour was, was under 400 quid, whereas an Alvis 1250, about the same size, the chassis alone was, was 450. What was important to him is creating something that was very unique to his company and had his company's identity and stamp on it. But equally, he couldn't go out and start to tool up and to get the skills in-house necessary to build bodies, would he? And this is where companies and partnerships like this would have come into their own to get small-scale manufacturers off the ground. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, some, some companies did have tie-ups. Some companies did make their own bodies. Uh, Morris began to build their own bodies with, 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 with a company called Morris Bodies. Um, but others um, who didn't have the resources like, like Morris would buy in bodies. And, and of course, you could, you could buy a separate chassis from a dealer. And a dealer would have an arrangement with a, car, with a, a coach builder and they would show, show the customer, the dealer would show the customer the coach builder's catalog and say, well, you can have that, you can have that, it cost you that much, that's the price of delivery, whatever. And they say, okay, yes, we like that, let's have that. But the, th- the thing about MG um, and Kimber and, and car bodies, their, their, their liaison was that car bodies were, were making just basically two styles. They were making two or three styles. They were making the Salonette, the two-seater Tourer, the two-seater and the four-seat Tourer, um, which in cutting and keeping that range small um, kept the prices down. And, and of course, they were very smart. They were very well, good, good value because they were very well appointed. And that was a great asset to, to Kimber as well. The, 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 the other big attraction to, um, to Bobby Jones at Car Bodies was that Morris Garages, being owned by William Morris, was underwritten by him. Bobby Jones knew he was going to get paid. At a time when all these fledgling, fledgling uh, companies were working on, on overdrafts often and were very short of ready cash, a customer like that to Bobby Jones was worth its weight, absolutely worth its weight in gold. Hmm. 
Yeah, of course, at this time, the economic world was not in a good place, was it? We're talking sort of mid-20s, late-20s. The world was in a deep recession, and, and weirdly, it had just come out of a global pandemic and was just about recovering from a war as well. All things that seem shockingly familiar as we sit here today in 2022, but it wasn't an easy time to trade, was it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, 1926 was the year of the, the general strike, Um there, there, there were um, a lot of people out of work right across the country. But the curious thing is that Midlands bucked that trend. They were doing very well. Um, there, there, was plenty, there was enough money about to keep all these companies going. And bear in mind, even um, a company like Morris was still relatively small compared to what was going on in the USA, although it was the, it was the biggest maker in the country. And MG, MG production numbers were, were still penny numbers. We're talking about maybe one or two a week at the most. So, so if you didn't need to have huge numbers of customers, but that was in, in times like that, this, this was MG's great advantage in that they were producing a, a car with, with really lively performance that was a lot cheaper than people like Alvis or Lee Francis or Lagonda. And it was just basically good value. Mm -hmm. What do we know then about how these bodies were shipped to Cecil Kimber and indeed to Morris? Were they, um, were they transported as sort of shells, as we, we might call them now, or, or were the chassis and the running gear sent to them? How would, did the production flow work? The, the, the bodies were built at car bodies and uh, MG would send the chassis down um, by road just with a, with a basically a wooden box for the driver to sit on and the bodies would be fitted at car bodies and, and driven back. And, and that went for the, the 14 horsepower cars, the 1428 and the later 1440 and for the, the first car that really carried the MG badge and MG radiator, the 1880. So it really is completing the last part of their production line, isn't it? They're building what they can and then sending it off to the body manufacturer here. Uh, it, it, it was, it was uh, common practice for small, small manufacturers to do so. Well, even Rolls-Royce and Napier did, well, Napier, not Napier, but Rolls-Royce certainly um, shipped bare chassis to, um, to uh, uh, individual coach builders. They, they didn't have any coach building industry interests of their own until the second world war but yeah so it, it was it was normal practice were they the only supplier to mg or was there sort of a group of these companies that were building these bodies for mg at the time car bodies was the main one um, there, there were um there were bare chassis sold from time to time but by far the 80 80 90 percent of of the, the bodies that went on to mgs at this time and up until the 1930s, early 1930s, came from car bodies. And then, of course, things would all change because then Leonard Lord would arrive at Morris. How did that impact things at car bodies at the time? It kicked the legs from right underneath them, quite frankly. Or it would have done, but for other circumstances. Um, William Morris was faced with a lot of personal taxation problems because he owned everything himself. So he had to restructure the company and he sold MG, the MG car company to, to the Nuffield organization 
as it really needed organisation. He brought Leonard Lord in from Wolsey and said, okay, okay, LPL, get on with it. And that's what he did. And Lord looked at what was, was going on here and he said, okay, we've got a sports car manufacturer that is whose, whose balance sheet is going up and down like a yo-yo, um, making a really confusing range of models, and we're buying in bodies when we've got our own body shop. That does not make sense. So he said, okay, change the model line, do away with car bodies. We're not buying bodies in. We're going to have all the bodies made in-house by Morris Bodies. And of course, that, that really took... Bobby Jones was also supplying Alvis, and he'd lost them around the same time. And had he not got into bed with, with uh, the Roots group to build bodies for the new um, Hillman Minks and, and uh, Big Humbers and whatever, he probably would have um, gone to the wall, as, as a lot of coach builders were doing at the time. Because remember, also, at the end of the 1920s, uh, Morris had founded the Press Steel Company of Great Britain and started to make all steel bodies, which were a lot cheaper, quicker to make. And as, as soon as these all steel bodies came in, into, into uh, regular production, it brought the, car, the price of a family car down to, uh, down to a, a really affordable level. And between, what, 1930 and 1940, the number of cars on the road went from 1 million to 2 million, and most of them were 10, 12 horsepower, um, all steel family saloons. And the, the coach building industry virtually collapsed. And it was, it was really only the fact that um, car bodies were then able to specialise um, in drop-head coupes that they were able to survive during that, during that time. But obviously with the loss of MG, that was their big, big customer. It was the company that made them and it could have, and severing the connection could have been the company that brought, the, could have been the connection that brought them down, but they found somebody to say, that saved their lives. So we're up to the mid 1930s now. I guess their involvement then with MG would have ended with the, the, the triple M cars. I suppose they were the last car bodied, bodied MGs we saw. Almost. Uh, there were, yes, we're, we're talking about the, um, the K-type magnets and the Magnus, because the, Mag the Magna was finished. Uh, the, the, there was a, uh, the N-type uh, magnet was, was, was a, a Nuffield vehicle, if you like. That was, that was a Leonard Lord, Lord MG, if we can put it like that. Then the P-types and the SAVAWA cars which were all pure Nuffield. But yes, but there was one other connection with a man called Henry Allingham. He originally was part owner of what was the biggest um, coach builder in Britain in the late 1920s, and he was supplying Morris. And then Morris decided to start uh, building all steel bodies. That really knocked the legs from underneath, underneath Allingham's company, Hoyle. Uh, so he set up um, on his own uh, as a designer and an agent to, to organise special bodies for car manufacturers where 
where they were starting to, to have uh, these standardised all-steel saloons, they wanted to have a range of sporting bodies. So Allingham stepped in and said, OK, rather you do all the work, you pay me, me, me a commission, I'll organise them. Rover got in bed with them, Ford did, and Vauxhall. Um, but that didn't last for very long. But Allingham also had an MG dealership in, in central London. And he rallied, he designed a couple of special bodies. He designed uh, the, the 2-4 um, coupe, um, which only about three or four were built, and also the airline. And this is where car bodies came in, because although Whittingham and Mitchell, another car um, uh, coach builder, was uh, na named as possibly making the prototype airline coupe, it was car bodies that made... The, the production ones, and they went on PA, on P-types, and on N-type uh, magnet chassis. And, and we know the, you know, the LMO was probably one of the most glamorous-looking MGs ever built. Mm, yeah, absolutely. What do you think it was about Carbody's approach to building these um, vehicles then for MG that made them so unique um such good quality because those pre-war mgs they really were top quality um vehicles of their day weren't they um you know you can see the fit and finish is beautiful um and yet affordable because that was of course what cecil kimball was trying to do make an affordable sports car for the people uh, obviously car bodies had a huge input into that success so what was it about the way they built bodies that made that possible for companies like mg do you think but um, a lot of it was was down to their construction techniques because rather than have what they used to, some coach builders used to do was have a team of people building the whole car. Um, Fred would build a door and then somebody else would uh, build, uh, build the back framework or, or whatever. But what, what Bobby Jones did was have the system that actually Hollick and Pratt started to use, whereas he had one two or three men may, all only making doors. Then he had uh, men only making scuttles. And they, they all came together and bolted that body together. So it was, it was a consistency of finish, and that kept the price down. The, uh, another aspect, of course, um, is how the bodies were finished. Because um, you've seen some of the, the 1880 saloons. They're fabric-bodied. Um, and they were fabric body because that was cheap to, to do. Because at that time, uh, coach painting was very, very long-winded. The bodies took, the paint took six weeks to dry. If you could have a quicker way of, of painting a body and deliver and, and a cheaper and deliver it to the customer more quickly, then fine. That's where the new cellulose paint came in. And Bobby Jones was one of the first people to, to buy in a cellulose paint plant, and you, you went from fabric-bodied 1880s to what they call panel-bodied 1880s, steel and painted. They were, they were, they were finished more quickly, um, and the customer got the car, car more quickly. And, and although originally, funnily enough, the, the panel body cost more um, than the fabric body, eventually it got a little bit cheaper, and... That, that helped keep the price, uh, one of those things that helped keep the price down. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why the, the original M-type bodies, you, you, 
fellow members have, have seen pictures of three M-type bodies in a crate priced at £6.10 shillings each. <laughs> um, they were cheap because simply they covered them in fabric. And when they could, uh, car bodies could paint the bodies with cellulose, they offered, offered panel body uh, versions of, of the M-type. And in fact, pretty much every other um, MG, although car bodies didn't paint um, anything after the 1880s and the M-types, because when Cecil Kimber moved to, to Abingdon, he brought in a cellulose plant and car bodies then shipped all their bodies in the white, as they called them, just the plain finished, unpainted bodies to Abingdon. And then MG painted them, trimmed them and mounted them on the chassis there. So then Kimber got even more control over the costs. Amazing to think, you know, looking back from this point in time, that the big technological advance of that time was cellulose paint. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, it kind of went hand in hand with all steel bodies, because basically, um, as soon as the all steel body came along, it very quickly morphed into the unit construction car and then the monocoque construction of, of, of car. I mean, we have to say that MG were rather late comers into that field, with the MGA being the first all steel MG MG sports car. Anyway, um, obviously the uh, the um, the Y type had a, had a steel body from the the, more, the series E Morris Eight, but but yeah, that 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 was one of the um, real game changers. Cellulose paint. It's, it's we we often look at engines and and. Um, how companies rise and fall, whatever. We forget about all the details that go in into the design and construction of a car that um, are behind it all that, that really could make huge contributions to, to what, the, what cars are today. Uh, what do we know about the design process before production actually began then? So were, were car bodies involved in the actual design of these bodies for MG or would they literally have just taken plans on a piece of paper and made it to spec? What do we know about that process? Well, there were standardised designs, but a lot of that design um, came from Cecil Kimber and we can only guess from from. Uh, Irene Kimber as well, because she, she was a, 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 had a very good eye for design. The other interesting thing is that Cecil Kimber and Freddie March were very good friends. And uh, Wilson McComb actually interviewed one of uh, Kimber's daughters later in life, and she said in the late 1930s, um, um, Kimber, Kimber and, and Freddie March were, were, were the best of mates. He would come round and they, they, they would play with the kids and uh, be uh, real family friends. But Freddie March had his own body design company, um, Kevin Davis and March, and he was the first person to design what we think of as the classic British sports car with cutaway doors and the, the raised instrument panels and the flared wings all the things we associate with a pre-war and immediately post-war MG sports car. How much interchange there was between the two men, we don't know. But I, I, I have it in the back of my mind that the two men did talk, did discuss ideas, and Kimber borrowed a few things from, from March 
because the the, the first car was um, a singer um, with all those features predated the MGs with those features. And in fact, the Aeromix, the Aeromix Tourer body, apart from its doors, is almost identical to what you find on a Magna chassis. The only difference being the cutouts of the doors. The cutouts of the doors on the March body are rounded. And in fact, the, the driver's door is cut out more deeply than the passenger door. Whereas, as we know, with, with, with an MG, it's a, straight, it's a straight diagonal line downwards. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of that design came, I, I'm sure, from March. It's exciting to think, isn't it, that, that that sharing of ideas gave rise to the MGs that we now know from the 1930s, that in turn gave rise to really the democratisation of the sports car for the average motorist. I mean, they they weren't exactly affordable to the point where you'd see them on every street, but they were affordable for people who'd done well in life, but they didn't have to be millionaires in order to access the sports car lifestyle. And then in turn, of course, because of all of the influence that car bodies has obviously had on MG, making them a viable business, making the vehicles affordable in that sense... You could argue then that very quietly, very subtly, and without probably anyone ever hearing of them, they actually started the ball rolling on the great British sports car that would later come along in the heyday of the late 50s and early 1960s. Do you think their impact was was that important? Um, as If you put it like that, yes, yes, certainly. Well, they were one of the, the contributory factors. Um, I mean... The fact that originally Kimber wanted to make a very affordable uh, sporting car, that fitted in with Bobby Jones's philosophy of uh, making good quality product at a price. I mean, he didn't have a huge range of bodies. That and that was that was his secret. He, he had a saying. He said, "What matters is what goes out the bloody door. What what makes money, and what makes money is what people can afford to buy." And and yes, it it, it did. Uh, he did he and Kimber together in producing MGs as affordable cars. Set set as you say, democratized the sports car. And of course, setting that business up and, and giving it enough momentum to continue into the future. I mentioned at the very beginning of this interview that they bought, built bodies also for Daimler, Austin, Ford and Triumph. They must have learnt a thing or two creating those bodies for MG that they later applied to those contracts further down the line. Um, we're moving in, in those vehicles, we're moving on to um, steel bodies and, and car bodies were definitely pioneers in use of, of, of steel in, in adapting a monocoque uh, saloon car into a, um, a convertible. But it, 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 it was a different ballgame. The, the Second World War gave them a lot of um, hardware, a lot of, lot of tooling, a lot of presses, a lot of machine tools that enabled them to move into uh, press steel bodies. So, so really, it's it's from the point of view of the business philosophy, 
of being able to offer a special service that the manufacturer wanted, yes, um, although the technology was different. I mean, Bobby Jones was was lost when it came to pressed steel bodies. He, he, he would say to his own son, like, he'd hold his hands out and say, I don't understand this. I'm, I'm a woodman. That's what I, what's what I understand. But his son did, son designs. Um, Ernest Jones understood it. And um, their works manager, uh, John Orr, understood it. He understood it extremely well, a very clever man. But it was a whole different ball game. But still the same philosophy, if you like, of being able to see what the customer wanted and being able to provide it, having the expertise to do it and the willingness to produce it at an affordable price. Do you think the Second World War actually, in some ways, saved the business for them then before they got into that phase? Because, you know, there were some manufacturing industries in particular that did actually, in some ways, benefit from the war effort. They were given shadow factories or they were engaged in the production of uh, of war materials. Was that the case for car bodies as well? Absolutely. Uh, Lend-lease, which is how they got all these... Um, these machine tools, they, they, they were said at the end of the war to have one of the finest tool rooms in Coventry. But the, the other aspect is that they got um, a material called Kirksite. And that is, I don't know how much our, our, our members know about how pressed steel bodies are made, but they, they are stamped over, over a, a, a cast steel, steel tool. And they're expensive to make, and they only work properly economically if you make if you make huge numbers i mean it's basically why the uh, the freedom magnet is basically a morris oxford <laughs> with a twin carburetor engine um but what kirksite could do um it was you you could cast it and you'd have a working uh, working press tool that produced absolutely accurate uh pressings although it didn't last very long but if you were only producing limited production runs that's fine what carbody's got into doing was making aircraft components um they they, they press the the engine cells for lancaster bombers and, and the, the bases for gun turrets and, and various other bits and pieces like like that and that what that did at the end of the second world war was got them into the taxi business because London taxis, it was also always a very small market, and most manufacturers weren't interested. Austin were committed to it, to it, um, but the dealers, Man and, o, but they, Man and Overton, knew that the old pre-war Austin had gone out of production. They needed a new one. Austin could provide the chassis, but they couldn't provide the body. They said, "No, we just don't have the room to make make the body." But we do know somebody who can, because Austin had been um, involved in with car bodies um, in producing aircraft components. And they put uh, Manuel Overton's and car bodies together. And car bodies, because they had this Kirksite uh, material, could press the body panels for a new steel body for the new taxi. And that became the FX3. And that led on to the FX4. And, and it, in, as special bodies such as 
convertibles and estates no longer became the realm of the specialist producer, and they, they were brought in in-house. Um, car bodies found themselves with this ready-made product with a, a ready market, and that is what they are now, London, London Electric Vehicle Company, the biggest manufacturer of purpose-built ca- taxis in the world. Amazing and incredible that given that rocky sort of survival and, and, the, and the, the fact that they had to survive on contract work from other manufacturers that would always try and control their costs by bringing it in-house one day, that they still exist today. And as you say, all down to the really the, the their ability to tool up and provide taxis. Um, when you look back at some of the stories you've uncovered in the research of this book, Um, Tell us a little bit about some of the people that you've discovered along the history of car bodies and where they were getting the skills from to come into the business. Well, I've I've got over a hundred hours of of taped interviews, (laughs) which I've I've now finally managed to get on on as MP3s, but, but I did meet some remarkable characters. Only a handful from pre-war years because of the time I was, I started in the late nineties and there was already a handful of people left from those times. So nobody who really, only, only one man who really worked on the coach built, um, uh, the coach built bodies. I mean, he showed me his toolkit, which, which was basically a few hammers and a couple of little steel dollies. And that was it. All the rest was down to his own skill, how he would shape, um, shape the, the, the curves and all, and all the mouldings in the bodies. A, remar- a remarkable skill. When you just look at this, you wouldn't give it a second glance if you didn't know what it was. Um, but the, the, the man who really told me more about anything um, about car bodies was a, was a man called Bill Lucas. Uh, he, and he took early retirement in 79 and, um, when he was managing director, but he he was he was in the army in the Second World War, He'd just been called up, a very young man. And but they said, we want your skills, and we want you to go to car bodies. And he thought, not car bodies, but you know, it, it, uh, to give you how an idea how bad the reputation the car company had as a place to work for. He almost didn't go. He, he almost would, would go to war rather than work there. <laughs> but, but, but in fact, he did. And he worked in the tool room and he, he, he worked on, on all these, these aircraft components and then was heavily involved in the taxi and in the converting of the Hillman Minks and Ford Zephyrs and consoles into convertibles. Um, and... But BSA took over, took them over in '54 um, to make um, because they want they wanted um, Daimler to have its own pressed steel body plant because um, British uh, well the BMC had, had not long been formed and they were going to take up all the production capacity of, of pressed steel company. Um, there was another company, uh, Fisher and Ludlow. And um, who were supplying um, standards? They were involved with standards. Um, Briggs were Briggs were supplying Fords, and then Fords bought them in about '54. So there, there was a real grab for whatever body manufacturing you could get. And car bodies, because they got the pressings and because they got the, 
the tools and got got the expertise. They were a real a real um, real blessing for 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 BSA. Um, but the problem is BSA was being run by um, Sir Bernard Docker, and uh, he he was making a complete hash of it. Um, so it, it was it was remarkable how well the company survived through those docking years. It was only for a man called Jack Sangster, who who um, who kicked the dockers out and, and got the, the the company working again properly. But they they survived. Um, but it but it was the taxi that was keeping them going. Hmm. What do you think is the most important thing that we should all know about car bodies? What was the biggest surprise? That you came across in your research over the years, surprise. Um, in fact, it was it was a whole series of surprises. To be honest with you, I mean, um, what when I speak about what they made, so many people said, "I didn't know car bodies made that. I didn't know they did this or this or, or, or whatever." It's it's the sheer scope of what they were capable of doing in in, in the time. What um, it, it was as as the the motor industry consolidated and and got into so many all steel bodies and changed the way they brought in um, components and whatever that really um, made small companies like car bodies almost unnecessary. Now it's gone the other way round now, where where so many. Um, um, smaller companies play an important part in contributing to the motor industry. So, like for instance, with the MGF and TF, it, the, the body was built by was was a product of, of Mayflower rather than by rather than from um, from Longridge. So, so at, at that time, it, it was that the, 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 the surprise was the sheer scope of, of what the company could do. It's a story that really does explain how Britain became a real manufacturing powerhouse, not necessarily because of big factories in Coventry that were churning out motor vehicles, but because of the workshops that supported that industry, the little cottage industries, the family businesses, the small industries that made Britain during that period, especially just after the war, uh, when that uh, huge resurgence in the motor industry took place. Those little businesses were the key to that. And this is a fantastic example and a great story of it um it must have been a fantastic journey to go through and and really document the the history of car bodies and we've learned a lot from it just from this uh, brief interview uh, but of course the book is out there and i know that uh, as you mentioned you published it first in 1998 now updated to include a full chapter this time on the history of mg and car bodies as well so if you want to read more about car bodies bill how do we get hold of the book where do we get it what, what can we do Ah, it's it's still in production. Unfortunately, it's 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 it, hopefully it's going to be out at the end of this year. Bit of a way to go yet because the story's almost written. But now I've I've got to start to put it all together and and, and get it ready. And uh, you you can you can you can register your interest um, if you go to my website, earlswoodpress.co.uk. Um, sign up. Um, up for the mailing list and that'll give the opportunity to buy it at a discount when it's ready 
We'll put the links to that on the description part of the podcast page and hopefully we'll be able to sell the book for you through the MG Car Club shop as well. So we'll let everyone know when it's available through there. And I know that you have had a lot of help and support from the MG Car Club in putting this revision together, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Certainly, uh, Rob Constant of the the vintage register has been a phenomenal help. He's, 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 as, he's as crackers about vintage MGs as I am, to be honest with you. Um, and, and also, also Kat Spelster of the, of the Triple M has been good. Um, individuals such as, as, as Mike Allison. I've, I've, I've had quite a few chats with, with Mike recently um, and, 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 and others, but, but um, for, uh, Philip uh, Bain Powell, who's who's allowed me to photograph some of his vehicles. Um, yes, the, the enthusiasm and the help I've had from MG Car Club members has been really, really gratifying and thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, um, I, I I have to say that w- without the contribution of those people, this new edition would not be possible. And it's great to have you here on the MG Car Club podcast to tell us all about it as well. Bill Munro, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Wade. My pleasure. Well, that's just about all we have time for on this episode of the MG Car Club podcast. Just before I go, Bill Munro did ask me to pass on a very special vote of thanks to David Hutchinson of the MG Car Club for all of his help in researching the book. See, we all help each other out round here. I'll join you next time then on another episode of the MG Car Club podcast. Don't forget all the details at mgcc.co.uk. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.